We pray the gospel message has been clearly presented, that our lives corroborate the good news, that people respond in faith as the Father draws them and lives are changed. You're listening to The Master's Plan, a sermon series at Shoreline Church. For more audio and theological content, visit thisisshoreline.com. I want us to think of a question this morning as we kick off this new series. And the question is this, what is the gospel? If we were to survey a group of 10 people, Uh, we might get 10 different answers to that question. What is the gospel? Remember when I was a youth pastor, I made that mistake of asking our students, what is the gospel? And I was very discouraged by the myriad of resulting answers that I got. But if we were to ask people today, what is the gospel? Would you be able to communicate that in a sentence? Many people would say, well, yeah, the gospel is that you pray a prayer and then you go to heaven. Someone else may say, well, the gospel is just about one word, love. Another person might say, well, yeah, the gospel, that's a type of music that you sing with organs and lots of soul and you eat fried chicken. That's gospel. Uh, I would say that today in some churches you would hear the phrase gospel about a lot of different things. They would say, well, we, are, we have gospel groups or we have gospel intentionality. Or we have uh, gospel ministry. Uh, I was invited to a meeting years ago by a group of men known as the full gospel businessmen. What does that mean though? What does it mean when we say the word gospel? Uh, The word gospel simply means this, good news. The gospel means good news. It's the good news you could say of God, more specifically in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who as we just sang was incarnated, that he lived a perfectly sinless life. He died in our place to save us from the wrath of God But he didn't stay dead. He rose again triumphantly from the grave and ascended to the right hand of the Father. So the gospel tells us that by faith in Christ, we receive his righteousness and we're justified. And then we're adopted, begotten spiritually into a new family. And as his image bearers, we have the opportunity to extend his glory to the ends of the earth until every nation, tribe, and tongue proclaims his praise. So the gospel is not about church, it's about Christ, amen? The gospel is, is good news, it's not good advice. Do you know what I mean? It's, let me explain that. The gospel is not a set of instructions on how to be a good person. If that's what you thought the gospel was, you've been grossly mistaken. No, the gospel is good news about the righteous son of man who came to those who were not good, i.e. me and you, you and I, Look to the person next to you. We are those who are not good. Uh, And he took upon himself our sin debt so that we could exchange our status of unrighteous to his status of perfectly righteous. In other words, the gospel isn't about you. The gospel is all about Jesus. That's where you answer. You guys know this from Sunday school. The right answer for everything is Jesus. (laughs) Jesus. So how do we infuse the gospel with the mission of God and the mission of the church. And that's what we're gonna be looking at for the next three weeks. We're gonna begin a new three-part series today called The Master's Plan. And we're gonna be looking at three aspects of God's mission, which also happens to be our mission here at Shoreline. And that is simply our mission is to win, 
disciple and send. That's what we are about. And so this week we're going to be looking at what the gospel is and what it means to share the gospel so that lost people are one to Christ. And then our desire is that when they're one to Christ, they don't stay in that state of immaturity, but they are growing and they're discipled, which is what uh, James, our youth director, who did our scripture reading this morning, he's going to be teaching next Sunday, super excited about that, uh, and walking us through what does that look like. The purpose of the church gathering is to equip the saints for discipleship. But we don't just stay there, do we? So our third and final week of this series, Pastor Micah is going to be teaching what it means to be sent, uh, the purpose of the church gathering, sent into the world on mission. And so I'm excited about this series. This is kind of a refresh of what our mission is as a church as we kind of begin this fall season. So uh, that brings us to what we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to give a little bit of a background of 1 Corinthians, and then we'll look at this text verse by verse. So if you're taking note, Paul the apostle planted a church in this Greek city right after he had visited Athens. He had gone to the city of Athens and stayed here in Corinth for about a year and a half, and the church had grown and had begun to flourish. But in the midst of that flourishing, there were also some major problems. Some of the problems that happened in the church of Corinth, which, by the way, there's problems in any church. If you're here today like, I finally found a great church, stick around a little while. You'll realize we're, we're a church that is filled with people, and people sin, and we have issues, and every church has issues. But the church of Corinth had kind of a lot. There were some major issues. Uh, They had selfishness and division and jealousy and pride. They actually favored one pastor over another. Oh, he's my favorite. Well, he's my favorite. They had this little issue of jealousy. They began to abuse and misuse the spiritual gifts and even communion. They were completely confused about some doctrinal issues like death and the afterlife and marriage and idolatry and, and a bunch of other doctrinal concerns. Uh, but worst of all, perhaps, they, they thought they understood God's grace, so they allowed sexual immorality uh, to not just happen in the church, but they were proud of it. Okay? So um, that, these are some big issues, but perhaps the biggest problem in the church of Corinth was what John warned against in 1 John chapter 2, verses 5, uh, verse 15, where he said, John said, do not love the world or anything in the world. You see, the church in Corinth, as Pastor John MacArthur said, um, could not get de-Corinthianized. They had the world and they brought the world into the church. They were, you could say, fence-sitters. They wanted the blessings and benefits of a new life in Christ without saying goodbye to the pleasures and pursuits of their old life. They wanted to seek God while still seeking their own way. And so Paul had written them a letter previously that we don't have. And a lot of people believe that the folks got that letter, had some follow-up questions. They either sent a delegation or correspondence And so his response letter to their questions is what we call 1 Corinthians. So in chapter 15, Paul shares the gospel message with the church in Corinth. Now, the believers had already heard this message. If you look back or jot down 1 Corinthians 2.2, he had said, when I came to you, I only resolved to preach Christ and him crucified. That's all I came to do. So they've already heard the message of the gospel. Uh, They had actually probably heard it on multiple occasions. And so Paul, in chapter 15, begins to remind them of the gospel, not just because they forgot, uh, but also because the gospel church is not just for the new believer or the maybe newly initiated, right? It's not like we say here at Shoreline to our kids director, hey, Michael, David, I would like you to preach the gospel only in the kids' ministry. That's the only time we do that. 
because the kids need that because they're babies in Christ. But we are mature and we've moved on from the gospel, right? That's not what we believe. We believe uh, that we must not, never advance beyond the gospel, but we move deeper into it. And so we must preach the gospel to ourselves daily. That doesn't mean you stand in a mirror and you read 1 Corinthians 15, but it does mean that we have to remind ourselves daily that it's not by works so that I could boast, that I am unworthy, but he's perfectly worthy, and so I'm gonna come to him based on the merits of Christ, not on my own merits. Do you ever need to be reminded of that? Maybe tomorrow on Monday morning, you need to be reminded. I need to preach the gospel to myself daily. So with that in mind, look at verse one. And if you're taking note, we're gonna look at seven aspects of the gospel uh, declared this morning. And then at the end, we're gonna apply it on how do we do this? Like, how do we do this? What do I do? Do I leave church today and go to a restaurant and share the gospel? Maybe. Well, I'm gonna give you some practical applications on what to do with the gospel message. So. Let's look at verse 1. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now if you're taking note or watching on Facebook, make sure you jot these down. Number one, the gospel, Paul says, is foundational. In other words, it defines salvation. Paul here says the gospel is preached, by him, and it's received by us. It's what we, he says, stand upon. It's by this gospel that we're saved. Church, can I just remind us that there are no other means, there are no other practices, there are no other disciplines, there are no other sources of revelation, no other religions, no other name that can save apart from Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for us at Calvary. Jesus Christ alone is the foundation of our faith. In fact, the gospel is the only good news. There is no other gospel, Paul would say to the Galatian church. And if you think there is, you're anathema. You're accursed if you were to preach any other gospel. Jesus alone is the foundation. Paul said this to the same church back in chapter 3, verse 11. He said, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid which is Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you're gonna lay a foundation of your works, you're gonna lay a foundation of maybe your, your self-righteousness, your pride, your self-sufficiency, maybe your zeal and energy. Well, in the end, a house built on those foundations will topple and crumble. The word in verse two, where it says if, should actually be translated since. So here's how you would read this. Paul is saying, you're being saved by the gospel since you're not letting go of what you heard. If you simply dismiss what was said, then you had vain belief, and it's not true faith. But notice that Paul had to transmit the good news from his own lips to others. The gospel has to be communicated. That brings us to our second idea. Look at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Second idea here is, jot this down, the gospel is fundamental. In other words, it distinguishes priority. Paul says, I delivered to you what was of first importance what I also received. And here it is, that Christ died for our sins. So the most important message that men and women receive at church is not three ways to be a better husband or seven habits of highly effective Christians. No, it's the message of the gospel. It's Christ crucified. Paul says, you know, I had several parcels to deliver, but the gospel was the most important. It was the, the, the news that needed to be delivered first. 
Some of us live far from our, our parents. Maybe your in-laws live out of state or maybe they live in state. They moved here to be closer to you. But um, I would just imagine some of us don't see our parents a lot. So let's say we go to reach out to them and, and we call them up and say, hey, mom, dad, I just want to tell you that um, uh, just some news, some updates. Um, yeah, so we painted our bedroom a new color and uh, I got a 2% raise at work and and uh, we found out that Junior is uh, allergic to gluten and my lawnmower broke. And your parents go, okay, yeah, I'm sorry about that, you know. Um, any other news? And you go, oh, yeah, we're expecting triplets, right? I mean, that's the news that you lead out with. That's the most important news you would give. You would call someone immediately to tell them that news. Uh, it's of first importance. And I think it's important to note here that Paul was just delivering what was given to him, right? He, he wasn't spicing it up. He wasn't adding garlic to the gospel to make it more palatable. He simply reports to them what he first received. Listen, Christian, you aren't to create the message. You aren't to make it more creative or original. You're to relay the message, right? Uh, here's what Spurgeon said. Spurgeon said, notice that the preacher does not make the gospel. If he makes it, it is not worth your having. I love this. Originality in preaching if it be originality in the statement of doctrine, is falsehood. Hey, I've got a new doctrine to teach you today. Mm, that's false. We are not makers and inventors. We are repeaters. We tell the message we have received. That takes the pressure off, doesn't it? I don't have to come up with, conjure up some new news. I just need to give the news that was given to me. So thirdly, I want us to note that the gospel is thirdly doctrinal. In other words, the gospel describes events. Notice the list that Paul gives his Corinthian readers from verses 3 to 7. He says here, Christ died for our sins. Uh, verse 4, he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. He appeared to uh, more than 500 brothers at one time, which eliminates someone from saying, well, maybe it was just kind of a hallucination. No, 500 people at once don't see hallucinations. He said many are still alive today and they can testify. Uh, then he said Christ appeared to James and the other apostles, and finally Christ appeared to me. So listen, the essence of the gospel is rooted in history. These are historical moments. You could say the gospel is creedal chronicle. What I mean by that is it's not merely a story where we go, yeah, it's a nice myth like Aesop's fables. They're good moral stories, and they teach you about the tortoise and the hare. No, it's more than that. Uh, it's, it's more than just a myth. It's a true story that's rooted in an event. But neither is the gospel merely a set of beliefs that you just check off of a standardized form like you're going in for a cancer screening. Well, yeah, I've got a history of melanoma in my family. Check. I'm six foot two. Check. Uh, I have drank water today. Check. No, it's more than that. It's a doctrinal detail of what Jesus accomplished for us in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. If you think about it, we have not just one account, but four separate historical eyewitness accounts, narratives of who Jesus was, where he came from, what he said and did, and the gruesome way in which he was put to death. But all four of those accounts declare emphatically that Jesus absolutely rose from the dead, appeared to many, and then ascended to heaven. So listen, you cannot remove the resurrection event from the creedal aspects of Christianity and say, yeah, I just follow this belief. The belief is rooted in a person who has risen from the dead. But on the flip side, you can't just reduce Christianity to only an event, only the resurrection. Many popular persuasive pastors today want to say, hey, our faith is not about doctrine, it's simply about an empty tomb. 
And I would say, well, yeah, that's the centerpiece of our faith, but it's not the only event. So to truly understand and appreciate the resurrection, as James shared earlier, we have to rewind all the way back to the beginning of the story. And we have to look back at Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. We have to rewind to Jesus' unjust suffering. And we need to see all the types and shadows fulfilled in Jesus, that he was utterly reliant and dependent upon the Father and in total unity with him. We have to rewind to his virgin birth, uh, that he came from the line of David, the tribe of Judah, uh, that he was descended from Eve. He was the seed of woman, and simultaneously he was the second Adam, uh, that Jesus was a true and better representative for all mankind. Right? To understand the resurrection rightly, we don't just go to a tribe of people and say, Jesus rose from the dead. No, we have to rewind and go all the way back and say, he's not merely a man who came to reveal God. He was in very nature God, and he descended from heaven to reveal the Father and take our place and reverse the curse that entered the world when the first Adam fell. Right? Then we can fast forward to him sending the Holy Spirit and his church fulfilling the Great Commission and to his consummate return and rule and reign. So we have to realize his glory is going to extend to all the nations, and he promised that way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And all of those things, all of that is doctrinal. So just think about all the ologies, cosmology, epistemology, anthropology, soteriology, pneumatology, ecclesiology, eschatology, all the other ologies that we want to kind of dream up here this morning are rooted in the understanding that this is a creedal chronicle. We have to have the information correct. If Paul said Christ died but he didn't rise, then our faith falls apart. And that's really the basis for the rest of 1 Corinthians 15 as he talks about the resurrected body. It all hinges on the fact that Christ rose. And that's a historical event. If we get that wrong, if we get the virgin birth wrong, if we get maybe the the beginning of Genesis wrong, where there are six literal days. If we get these things wrong, then what else are we willing to give up? So the gospel's doctrinal. It describes events. But not only that, number four, jot this down. We'll move a little faster. The gospel's biblical. It displays Christ. Look at the times that Paul says, he says it two times in these verses, according to the scriptures. Verse three, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, Paul is referring to the Old Testament. So we don't just learn about Jesus starting in Matthew. We see him all the way through from Genesis to Revelation. The gospel's biblical. And you remember in John 5, Jesus said to the religious leaders, you search the scriptures because you think in them they have life. But you're failing to come to me because these scriptures testify about me. And yet you're failing to come to me to find life. Remember in Luke 24, Jesus spoke to those two disciples after his resurrection. And he recounted the law and the prophets, all the pictures of himself uh, foreshadowed in the Hebrew scriptures. I love that. So the gospel is biblical. The whole Bible gives us a picture of the cross. Well, look at verses 7 through 9. He says, then he appeared to James, then the apostles, and then last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And then Paul says this. It sounds like false humility, but stay with me. He says, for I am the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. If you're jo uh, taking notes, jot this down. The gospel, number five, is universal. It declares impartiality. Now, someone's heresy alarm went off and said, wait a minute, the gospel, are you saying that salvation's universal? No, I'm not saying everyone gets saved. 
That's a heresy, and we reject universal salvation or universalism as a false belief. It's outside the boundaries of Orthodox Christianity. When I say the gospel's universal, what I'm declaring is that it's for all people. It's, it's not just for one set of people. The gospel uh, is for all. Uh, there's no one too good or no one too evil for the love and grace uh, and gospel of God to reach us. Paul says it came to James, it came to the apostles, and then it came to me. And, and I'm one who is untimely born. I love that phrase. He almost considers himself the 12th apostle, but he just happened to be untimely born. He's just born a generation late. But it didn't matter because the gospel was not just for that generation it, uh, or one particular generation or one particular people group. It's for all peoples throughout all time. So listen, no one has a particular handle on the gospel, meaning there's not one tribe, there's not one nation. It's not like America only gets the gospel. There's not one tongue. It's not like English is the only approved language to preach the gospel. So wherever we go, we need to make sure we preach it in English because that's the only language God prefers. No. Uh, it doesn't matter what our socioeconomic status is or our caste or our race, our gender, our age, our denomination. Uh, no one, no specific group, uh, your weight, your fitness ability, your intellect, no one is excluded from the invitation to come and drink freely. So I love this idea about social justice. And this isn't my quote, but someone said this really well and succinctly this year. They said, impartiality, not equality, is the Bible's posture in social justice. I love that. Impartiality, not equality, right? God is not, uh, he, he's fully impartial. So the gospel is universal. But number six, the gospel is effectual. It's effectual and it disables pride. Look at what Paul's response is in verse 10. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. I love this. Paul acknowledges the grace of God in his life. He considered himself the least of the apostles. Why? Because he persecuted God's people. But in the midst of this, he was grateful for grace. I wonder if I were Paul, maybe you were Paul. We said, let me stand in for Paul in this verse. You know what I would say, what we would say? We would probably begin boasting of all the people that we had reached in comparison to someone like Thomas or Bartholomew, right? Oh, who's Bartholomew? Bart? He didn't reach anybody for Christ. I've reached all of Asia for Jesus. No, instead he promotes the goodness of God in his life. We know this, that the name Saul and Paul, it's not that he was Saul and changed it to Paul. It's that that was a particular name he had and was known primarily as Saul. But then after Christ, he's known primarily as Paul. And you could say, well, one is his Hebrew name, one's his Greek name. But I think it's interesting. He was primarily known as Saul and thereafter rarely known except by the name Paul. The names mean something. The name Saul means sought after. Someone you seek after. I want Saul. Where's Saul? I'm desiring to seek him. But the word Paul, you know what it means? The word Paul, the name Paul means little. I like that. Saul, you know, before Christ is someone that's sought after. We want to get his perspective. Let's have Saul come and speak to our church. Then, as he's known in Christ as Paul, uh, instead of Saul, the Benjamite Pharisee, the Hebrew of Hebrews, classically trained by Gamaliel, now he's the little and least. 
He's the preacher sent to the Gentiles. You see, wherever the gospel takes root in our lives, pride is vanquished and hearts are changed. You would maybe agree to that at that point, that the gospel is effectual in your life. The gospel keeps us from boasting. It keeps us from pride. It keeps us from uh, wanting to promote ourselves. Well, finally, number seven, uh, the gospel is confrontational. And that's where I want to spend some of our time this morning. It demands a response. Notice Paul says in verse 11, so we preach and so you believed. See, church, when the gospel is presented, it's always either rejected or it's received. So you can choose to save your life or lose it. You can build your house upon the rock or upon the sand. You walk the narrow path or the wide road. All of us, as the gospel is presented, have life and death standing right before us. And so today, to not respond is to choose a response. To waver or wait is to respond by rejecting. And we know this, only those whom the Father draws can awaken to faith and be born again. And whenever someone has saving faith, it's because the word of God, Jesus, was preached and the Father was actively drawing them and then the Holy Spirit was regenerating that person spiritually from the inside out. So the gospel, when it's preached, is confrontational. It's going to divide an audience. Some are going to receive, and I want that, and some are going to say, I don't want that. If the gospel is rightly preached and not promised like prosperity and just jump with Jesus right now. Everyone raise your hand if you want to know Jesus. Okay, cool. Uh, everyone gets, someone's getting a free car today if you'll raise your hand, right? Everyone's going to, I'll raise my hand. It's not, if we're presenting the gospel rightly, then it will be rejected by some. As hard as that is to understand and in the mind of God from eternity's past, uh, some are predestined. It's so hard to understand these things in a quick sermon, but today many churches are shying away from preaching the gospel. They're shying away from that. So what happens is the opposite of these seven attributes. The opposite. So look back if you took note. Look at those seven notes for a minute. What happens is we stop preaching a confrontational message, which means we bolster men's pride in their own works. Or we make it exclusive to one nationality or people group or political party against another. We shy away from the Bible, and we begin to preach a man-centered apologetic for the existence of God and even use science to back up our assertions. We downplay doctrine and accuracy and thus erode confidence in what we actually believe. So what do we, what do we talk about? Well, we talk about what's relevant, what's catchy, rather than what has power to save. And thus we build on a faulty foundation that may help attract a large crowd, but the masses remain unconverted church people who are pleasant to be neighbors with, but who are damned to an eternity apart from God. No wonder Paul cried out in chapter 9, verse 16, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to me. You see, I wonder if Paul was given counsel today to reach Corinth for Christ. If he were to seek some of our modern-day pastors and church leaders. If they were to say, Paul, I've got a strategy for you on evangelism. Here's how you reach Corinth. I wonder what they would say. I want to give us a little background of Corinth to kind of set this up for a minute. All right, so a little history. Rome actually sacked Corinth in 146 B.C. And for 100 years, it just laid there in ruins. Uh, many of our cities today and towns in Florida and the southeast hit by hurricanes. It can take a long time. But can you imagine 100 years of rebuilding? And so in 46 B.C., Julius Caesar refounded the city as a Roman colony. 
And Greece kind of has these two almost separate countries. You have northern Greece and you kind of have the southern island uh, that has this very narrow isthmus that connects it to northern Greece. So sailors would actually, uh, with merchants on their ships, they would prefer not to sail around the treacherous waters south of Greece, but actually um, they, would have, they would head up towards Corinth. Uh, and the lighter ships could actually be taken out of the water and put on rollers, and you could roll them through this really narrow uh, four-mile bridge of land and back onto the water. And so it's kind of a, a convenient little pass-through, a little canal, so to speak. And so the larger sh- ships, they just offloaded, and uh, the materials were brought on smaller ships. So uh, in modern times, they finished the canal, but that crossroads of commerce was where, right where Corinth sat. So there's a place where all these men are coming off of ships, and they're offloading their ships, and they're traveling through the town. And so it became known as a crossroad for debauchery. It was known not just for commerce, but for carnality. There was a proverb that warned, not for every man is the voyage to Corinth. It had a reputation as an immoral and lewd place. In fact, Plato was referring to prostitutes, and he said, oh, there's some prostitutes. We call them Corinthian girls. That's how bad the city of Corinth was with sexual sin. In fact, there's a phrase, to Corinthianize, which meant to live a fornicating lifestyle. Oh, you're acting like... You know, you're a Corinthian. We might modern day say, hey, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth, right? So one of the contributing factors to the immorality was the fact that in Corinth there was a temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And they had a thousand temple prostitutes who would come down every night from the temple and just walk through the streets offering their trade to the many foreign travelers and local men. Many of them had their heads shaved. So Paul later talks about head coverings, meaning we shouldn't be shaving our heads. We're going to look like those prostitutes. So how did Paul win unbelievers in this city to Christ? How did he do it? Well, to understand how Paul evangelized and understand what it means to win, to get to 1 Corinthians 15, we have to go to Acts chapter 18. So if you guys have your Bibles, please turn to Acts chapter 18. We're going to spend just a minute on this. Acts chapter 18. We're going to be um, starting in verse 1. Acts chapter 18, verse 1. It says, after this, Paul left Athens. After what? Well, Paul had gone. He'd preached in the synagogue. He'd preached in the marketplace. And they invited him to go into the Areopagus, big kind of uh, place of debate and philosophy. So he begins to speak. And as soon as Paul mentions the resurrection, uh, he loses his audience. So I'll put it on the screen. Back in chapter 17, verses 32 through 34, it says, When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So just a few became believers in the city of Athens. This must have perhaps greatly discouraged Paul. He may have been hoping for that that big moment where you have the big stage. I'm, in, I'm at Mars Hill. He begins to speak and then kind of drops like a, like a coin. Bink. Nobody really receives the gospel. A few people. And so maybe that discouraged him. We don't know. But he leaves and he walks this long, dusty, 15-mile road from Athens to Corinth. Verse 2. It says, He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So 
If you're taking note, Paul meets up with this couple named Priscilla and Aquila. Because if you're going to be married to someone, marry someone that has a name that rhymes with your name. All right, so they happen to be strong believers, and they do the same thing Paul does, which is tent making. Now, I love that Paul never demanded money from those he was ministering to. He never allowed himself to be a burden. He supported his lifestyle by, make, by making tents, and he spent every Saturday in the Jewish synagogue preaching Christ to the Jews. But notice what happens. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Okay, this is amazing. Not only did one Jew respond, but it's the synagogue ruler. He's the head of the entire Jewish community there, and now he's a believer in Jesus. And so when this happened, many people became Christians. Now at this point, Paul's a little bit maybe worried. Now how do I know that? How do I know he's, he's afraid? Well, because of what happens next. Verse 9, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. Paul, God would usually say that to someone who is afraid. And so he says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I'm with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. After, or it says, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So Paul has the privilege of staying almost two years without any problems, just hanging out, teaching the church in Corinth the word of God. Now, the Jews may have been jealous that their synagogue ruler came to this new religion. And so they came against Paul and brought him to the Roman ruler. Remember, Rome was in charge at this time. Uh, they didn't want to hear arguments. And so basically, to sum up verses 12 through 17, um, they basically bring him before the tribunal. And the guy's like, I don't want to worry about this. You guys deal with it. Uh, and so it says that Sosthenes, the new synagogue ruler who replaced Crispus, became their scapegoat. And so the new, I don't know what he did wrong, but the new synagogue ruler basically um, gets the Jews who turn on him, they beat him, and it sounds like the end of the story. Uh, verse 18 says that Paul left for Antioch, the church in Corinth remained, but God had done a significant work in the city of Corinth. And here's why. I believe that is because Paul was faithful to preach the gospel to them, to preach Christ and him crucified. Now, some modern-day practitioners would tell Paul, hey, Paul, don't personally go to the city. It's too dangerous. Just send money to them. But to truly disciple all nations, we actually have to be goers. We have to go in and among the people. Some today would tell Paul, don't waste your time being occupied with the word. Just be a good communicator. Be catchy. Be eloquent. Or they might say, listen, Paul, you can't tell Jews that Jesus is the Christ. That's just offensive. So don't be offensive. They would dissuade Paul from using reason and doctrine and tell them, hey, keep your message relevant and entertaining. They would say, Paul, you're trying to reach a sex-saturated city, and you can't be serious to do that by teaching the Bible. You should just do a series based on the secular songs that the culture's singing, or better yet, you should do a series on an HBO show. Actually, this is not a joke. When I was studying the sermon this week, there's actually a church that 
did a series called Sex and the City of Corinth, a series on 1 Corinthians, right? Lord, forgive us. We're actually doing that. So what would the tactic be? What is the, what is the idea that, that we can walk away with today and understand, well, then what did Paul do? What can we do? How do we get the gospel message out? These are valid questions. And I want to just speak for a minute uh, before we apply this and talk about what is evangelism? What does it mean to have evangelism on our lips and in our lives? Here's how I would uh, define evangelism. Evangelism is simply this, demonstrating the gospel credibly with our life so we can declare it boldly with our lips. Let me read that again. Demonstrating the gospel credibly with our life so we can declare it boldly with our lips. So evangelism includes both our lips and our lives. Paul could have sent flyers, hey, distribute this to the synagogue. But no, he came in person. One of the biggest problems with evangelism in our current culture, with Christian culture, is that we as Christians have become infamous for fervent lips and filthy lives. So what happens is we're known in our little communities as rude, short, impatient, stingy, arrogant, or worse, as people who are just blatant sinners, full of debauchery. And then we try to tell people how they're missing out on the glory of God and the goodness of abundant life that we are experiencing as we're rude and and impatient with people. No wonder people don't want to hear what we have to say. So we have to live it. But see, I fear in our generation, we might swing the pendulum back the other way where we just live exemplary lives before the world, but we never speak the truth in love. See, we're a church that believes evangelism is important, and evangelism happens both in the church gathered, which is what we're doing today as the gospel's preached. We believe evangelism also happens when the church scatters out into the community on mission. Now, our gatherings here are for the church, okay, not the unchurched. That doesn't mean that we don't see unbelievers responding in faith to the invitation of God to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus for salvation. But we also need to know it's on us to be scattered out and to evangelize. So how do we do this? How did Paul do this? How do we win people to faith in Christ through evangelism? There's a book called Flesh by Hugh Halter. And he gives five ideas of this, and I kind of want to use this as our time of application. You're like, okay, pastor, great. So do I stand on the street corner? What do I do with the gospel? So here's what I want to do. I'm going to walk through these five things, and this will be our application. Number one, in his book, Flesh, Hugh Halter says the first thing we must have is what Jesus had, and that's incarnation. Incarnation. What does that mean? Well, the word incarnation means to be in the flesh. There's that Spanish word carne in there, and anytime I'm getting tacos, I'm getting carne tacos, all right? That's in the meat. So in, to be incarnate means to be in the flesh, in the meat. Jesus was incarnate, meaning he came from heaven to earth, not as an angelic being, not as a spirit floating, but in the flesh. He became a man, was born of a virgin. Jesus hungered, he thirsted, he grew tired, and he physically died on the cross. So incarnation means to be in the flesh among people. In verse 2 of Acts 18, notice, Paul found a Jew who had been displaced politically from Italy. And Paul doesn't say, hey, Aquila, Priscilla, uh, you know, I'm going to partner with you too. You guys work secular jobs to support me to do real ministry, real work. No, that's not the idea. Uh, Paul worked with them. When he wasn't in the synagogue in Athens, he was in the marketplace preaching Christ. So in Corinth, he goes to work. And so we don't separate the secular from the sacred when it comes to calling. You don't have the luxury of saying, well, I don't have to preach the gospel. I'm not the pastor. Uh, 
No, see, the marketplace is not a separate mission field. The marketplace is the mission field. R.C. Sproul says this about this word marketplace. He said the New Testament word for marketplace is agora. And the agora was not only the shopping district, but was also the center of civic life. The agora was surrounded by public buildings, shops, and colonnades. Here the children played, the idol loafed, lawsuits were heard, and public events were produced. It was public, not private, open, not secret, dangerous, not safe. The cradle of the church was the marketplace. From the preaching and public ministry of Jesus to the daily acts of the apostles, the central scene was the marketplace. See, tent making is not just something bivocational pastors do to make money on the side so they can do the real job of preaching. Uh, It's a part of the work. And so that's where Paul went. He didn't segregate from the world. He was incarnate. He was in the flesh among lost people. And that brings us to our second idea, which is reputation. Incarnation If we're among the people, leads to a reputation. So as Paul lived a gospel witness among lost people, he would begin to get a reputation. Hey, this guy, Paul's different. He he gets here early. He stays late. He does a good job in his tent making. John Piper says this about work. He said, first, the excellence of the products or services you render in your job shows the excellence and greatness of God. Second, the standards of integrity you follow at your job show the integrity and holiness of God. Third, the love you show to people in your job shows the love of God. The stewardship of the money you make from your job shows the value of God compared to other things. Fifth, the verbal testimony you give to the reality of Christ shows the doorway to all these things in your life and their possibility in the lives of others. See, uh, this is why we are incarnate among people. We allow the gospel to go into the real world. And listen, that doesn't just happen at work. It happens when we're the smiling, friendly customers who frequent the same line at the grocery store. It happens when we're the thankful and encouraging parents in our kids' schools. It's when we're consistently working out in the gym and we're carrying a joyful uh, and positive spirit. It's when we keep our yards and properties clean and attractive. When we do these things, we're shining God's glory and are simultaneously being attractive in the world among lost people to produce a thirst in them, uh, why we're different and the reason for the hope that we have. And and so there's lots of practical ways we can do that. Like don't pay at the pump, go in. Don't do self-checkout, go to a cashier and stay with that cashier. Keep going to those same places. Don't just go where it's convenient. Go where you're actually meeting people. And there's there's very practical ways we can do this. Uh, That's that's really how we can be incarnate and build a reputation. So never underestimate the power of being faithfully present. The gospel must be declared and demonstrated by faithfully present followers of Jesus. Incarnation leads to a reputation, and that often leads to a, thirdly, conversation. So eventually, the time will come to have a conversation. For Paul, it was publicly in the synagogue and reasoning with the Jews and Greeks. For us, it may be when people come to you and go, hey, why are you different? There's something that's standing out about you. Maybe it's on a plane or a waiting room when we want to check out and be on our phone. Maybe that's an opportunity. Uh, maybe it's with our family, and they're wondering, how did you deal with that trial and that, that issue with such peace, with such joy? I don't get it. You should be overwhelmed, and you're not overcome. You're still uh, trusting this God you serve. Can you tell me more about him? See, it'll lead to a conversation often. And when conversation happens, that leads to number four, which is confrontation. 
Now, most of the time we skip those first three, don't we? And we go, all right, I'm ready for confrontation. Give me someone who needs Jesus, let's go. I've got tracks, I'm ready to put them in their face and confront. And and that's not horrible, uh, but when the gospel's preached, uh, it invokes confrontation. So we shouldn't fear it, we should expect it. Some people will ridicule what you believe. They will uh, fight against you, but we're not afraid of man. Right? We have greater fear of God. So we know people will come against us, but we're preaching Christ. And if Jesus offends them, it's not us. So we have to be willing to confront. And Paul does that. He confronts with the gospel. And uh, ultimately, light is confrontational. Well, when there's incarnation, and it leads to reputation, conversations come up, confrontation happens. This is what we pray for. Number five, we pray for transformation. We pray the gospel message has been clearly presented that our lives corroborate the good news that people respond in faith as the Father draws them and lives are changed. Paul had the privilege of seeing many in the synagogue born again and regenerated as Christ followers. I remember I told you Sosthenes, the new synagogue ruler, he got a beat down from the Jews. Well, eventually he heard Paul preach the gospel. And he saw the gospel displayed in Paul's life in front of him. And he no doubt had conversations with Paul and was confronted with his own wretchedness and need for a savior. So who do we find in 1 Corinthians 1.1? Let me put it on the screen. Who was helping Paul write the letter of 1 Corinthians? Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Isn't that cool? The guy who took over for Crispus eventually becomes the brother Sosthenes, transcribing the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians. As we close, I want to invite our worship team forward, and we're going to stand in a moment and sing uh, this song together. The name of the song is, O Church, Arise, and I find this a fitting song to sing to kind of conclude this message, because I believe we do need to rise up. I think when we consider who Jesus is, he's the Word made flesh, he's God incarnate, he came from heaven to earth and became a man. He lived among us and yet distinct from us. Jesus gained a reputation as being a friend of sinners. Jesus commanded people to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he lived a perfect life and he died at the hands of sinful men and took the full wrath of God on your behalf. Jesus died so that Sosthenes might live. He died so that you and I may live. And like Paul, you and I are not going to reach a corrupt community like Corinth, if we're living just like the Corinthians. Paul told them in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, he said, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, the word is porneia there, those who are, are bound up in porneia, sexual immorality, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I love that. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were justified. You're being sanctified. So church, Later, as we dismiss today, don't lose your salt. Don't lose your voice. Don't hide the light. Be faithfully present.
boldly preach the good news to all who are here, who will hear. Don't compromise the message. Don't allow the fear of man to hold you back. One day we may meet a brother Sosthenes or two in heaven because of it. Amen. Let me pray for us this morning. If you bow your heads, I'm going to pray a prayer from the Valley of Vision, Puritan prayer, and it's titled The Gospel. I pray this for our church. He prays this, O thou most high, creator of the ends of the earth, governor of the universe, judge of all men, head of the church, savior of sinners, thy greatness is unsearchable, thy goodness infinite, thy compassions unfailing, thy providence boundless, thy mercies ever new. We bless thee for the words of salvation. How important, suitable, encouraging are the doctrines, promises, and invitations of the gospel of peace. We are lost, but in it thou hast presented to us a full, free, and eternal salvation. We are weak, but here we learn that help is found in one that is mighty. We are poor, but in him we discover unsearchable riches. We are blind, but we find he has treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We thank thee for thy unspeakable gift. Thy son is our only refuge, foundation, hope, confidence. We depend upon his death, rest in his righteousness, desire to bear his image. May his glory fill our minds, his love reign in our affections, his cross inflame us with ardor. Let us as Christians fill our various situations in life, escape the snares to which they expose us, discharge the duties that arise from our circumstances, enjoy with moderation their advantages, improve with diligence their usefulness, and may every place and company we are in be benefited by us. Father, that's our prayer this morning, that we would be your image bearers and the gospel declarers to the ends of the earth. You've given us a life to live and lips to proclaim. Lord, may we not shrink back. May we do what Paul did and be incarnated, what Jesus did, what the apostles did. They would infiltrate a community by being a part of the community, by a reputation that they're different, that they're set apart. They're not the same, they're distinct. Lord, that that would invoke a conversation and eventually confrontation, repentance and faith, which leads to transformation. We wanna be your salt, we wanna be your light to this dark community, Lakewood Ranch, Bradenton, Sarasota, that is dying and living in eternity apart from their heavenly Father of love. So Lord, I pray that today we would allow these things to be settled in our hearts and we would leave today willing to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, even here. We love you, Lord. We worship you. We ask that you would allow the church of Jesus Christ to arise. It's in his name alone that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.